Well, not really. We've got about half. We've got about half of you here. I think we've got. I think we're down to like twenty. I think we have twenty left in the class. So nine out of twenty is not not horrible. Um, extra points. Oh. <laughs> Well, it is. The attendance is extra credit, so those who didn't show up don't get to drop a grade. You get to drop them one you missed. So essentially, it's three extra credit points for being here. Unless you had perfect attendance already, which I don't think anybody had. Then I give. I usually add in an extra point. Nobody had absolutely perfect. Everybody had missed something. Oh. Yeah, well, now that's fixed, and now you get extra credit for this one. So there will be some extra credit for you. Um, coming up. We do have a bunch of extra credit things here coming up. So like half of what I have up there is extra credit. Um, which I didn't bring the exams back, but if you saw my comment on them, I don't know what I don't know what I did or if I'm just not clicking with the class in terms of exams. Because I've given used those questions before or similar questions and I've done I know sixties to seventies, but a fifty percent was really a little shocking to me, which is why you have ten extra points added in there. So the ten points is already added into the grade you see, which made things a lot better. It's not ten more on top of that. That, that, add, that adds the ten into it. So it's still, it's still significantly better. I will give those back next week. I have a couple people who missed who are making it up, so I have to wait until those are done. Uh, but you have the course evaluation extra credit. I know a few of you have done that. If you have not, I won't see you again before it's due, because it's due at midnight on Sunday. I'll probably send an email reminder. I'll probably send that email reminder to everybody. So I'll say if you have not already completed it, make sure you do and send me the email before midnight on Sunday so that I can give you credit for doing that. Uh, if you don't have the information as to how to get into that, if you never got the email for whatever reason, send me one. I'll copy the information they have and tell you how to get to it otherwise. So if you can't find it in your Hawk mail, let me know and I'll get you the information so you can do it. Just don't do that Sunday night <laughs> asking me for it. You know, do it earlier so I can get you the information. Um, solar observation project itself is due on Monday when we come back. So that will be the graphs and the calculations that we did in class. If there's any questions on them, I'm not taking the weekend off. I mean, I'm traveling, but I'll be online. I will be on email. So if you have questions, feel free to email me. Again, not Sunday night. You know, after about 8 o'clock, 8, 8, 8.30, I don't usually look at the email or the class again until the following morning. So if you send me something at 10 o'clock at night, I'm not going to be able to help you. Although, you know, for your class, it doesn't matter so much because your one first of December really means the second of December at 6 o'clock. So you can ask me questions in class on Monday if there's last minute problems, if you want me to look at your graphs or calculations. Today right after class or on Monday I can also still take a look at those. If you're doing the history of astronomy or the Galileo scope one, those are due on Wednesday of next week, a week from today. And then homework five is due the last day of class which will be on the 5th of December. Last regular day of class, not the final exam which comes up the following week. So. Bunch of chances for more extra credit if you need it there. So make sure you're taking a look at those and getting those in there because that will certainly, certainly help. Any questions on anything up here? All right. Well, our picture of the day for today is a couple of Jupiter's moons. Not really high resolution images that we're used to looking at. These were actually taken with a small telescope here on Earth. And we're looking at two moons, Io the brighter one here, and Callisto, the darker here. 
And what we're watching is that as they move, the way Jupiter is aligned right now, it's kind of edge on to us, so the moons are passing right in front of each other. So what you're seeing here is essentially is an eclipse. Io is being eclipsed by Callisto. So this was at 5.50, two minutes later, one to two minutes later between each of these observations. And you can see there's Io. There it's disappearing, disappearing, disappearing. It's gone. Callisto is completely blocking it for a few minutes. And then a little while later it comes back out again. So we can see eclipses. We talked about eclipses of the sun, the moon blocking out the sun. We talked about eclipses of the moon, the moon moving into the Earth's shadow. Um, eclipses can occur all over the place. We see eclipsing stars, binary stars that block each other. We see planets that pass in front of stars and block out some of their light. That's how we detect a lot of the planets, a lot of the 1800 planets that we've now detected outside the solar system. And here even within our solar system, about every five to six years Jupiter is lined up just right so that it's sort of edge on and the moons will constantly pass in front of each other. And we'll see a number of eclipses, eclipses like this. So that's just kind of an image taken over the period of what, about 20, not, 20, not even 25 minutes as Io was eclipsed by Callisto. And that was taken, how big of a telescope? A 20-inch telescope. So it's a good size telescope. 20 inches. You know about how big that is, right? You know, about that size. That's a pretty good size mirror. That's a good size amateur telescope. It's not, you know, professional telescopes start at, you know, meter to two meters to two of these range. So, but it's still a very good size telescope. And that's about that's sort of the idea. We don't really see a lot of detail on those moons here from Earth. It's really all the nice images you see of them, not taken by big telescopes even here on Earth, or really taken by the spacecraft that have gone out to Jupiter. That's really the only way we can, we can see them well. Questions? All righty. Well, let's go ahead and get started on 17, which is what I wanted to do today so we can finish up. It's a little bit longer chapter. So I want to make sure we get through all this in detail. And this is kind of the big one. This is really has everything in the universe here in it. And it's uh, cosmology is the study of the history of the universe. So how did the universe form? How did we get to everything that we have today from that initial formation, from the Big Bang? How did we get to everything that we see today? And when we look, we've been looking at, we talked about galaxies, and as we look at those, I think the next picture is an image of a whole bunch of galaxies. This is what's called the Hubble Deep Field. And we looked at that last, you looked at that last week when we did the lab on looking at the, looking at the galaxies there, counting the galaxies. You may have seen something very similar to this. What they did was they picked an apparently empty part of the sky where nothing was known, so there's no bright stars there, no bright galaxies. It just looked completely empty. And they'd point the Hubble telescope there. And then when it was available again, when there was a little bit of time, they'd point the Hubble telescope there again. You know, maybe five minutes here, ten minutes here, where they had time to keep pointing at this one field over and over to try to look for the very faintest objects to be seen. So we're looking at some of the most distant objects in the universe here. We're looking back at very early, what things looked like very early, uh, after, very shortly after the Big Bang. Now there are a few objects that are not extra galaxies here, but almost everything you see in this image is a galaxy. And this is not a big, this is not the whole universe. This is a little teeny tiny portion of a section. If this is the northern one, which I believe it is, it's up by the Big Dipper. 
So it's actually towards the Big Dipper. It's a little tiny section of the sky. There are a few stars. You can see the little diffraction patterns, little spike diffraction patterns through one there, one there. And I thought I saw another one at some point. There's, a couple, there's several stars on there. Almost everything else you see on there is a galaxy. So again, giving you a little bit of a sense of perspective as to where we are. We had our solar system. We got smaller and smaller. Now we've got, just looking at this one little tiny portion of the sky, we can see all of these galaxies. The one thing we noticed and that you may have noticed when we did that lab last week was that the most prominent galaxies when we looked at this were the irregulars. The irregular galaxies were what were very common in the very history of the universe. No great big spiral galaxies. There's some forming that look like they might have some kind of spiral structure here. Here there might be some that are starting to form that are a little bit closer. But the very oldest ones, the very earliest ones we find, all look irregular. They're all very tiny galaxies. And that's one of the reasons we think that galaxies formed, the galaxies we see today formed from all these little galaxies combining together. So what we're going to look at is, first of all, the universe on the biggest scales. That kind of picks up right where we left off in the last chapter. We looked at that image, that little map of the universe with all the galaxies plotted as dots. And we're going to pick up right there. We'll look at the expanding universe discovered by Hubble. We talked about Hubble's law previously. And the expanding universe, and what does that mean? If the universe is expanding, Consider backwards in time. We watch it expanding. What does that mean? It must have been smaller and smaller. And you can take that to its logical conclusion that at some point, all the material in the universe had to be condensed down into a tiny point. So we know that the universe was at some point in a very, very compact, very little space. We'll look at space. This is the one that probably won't get to this till Monday, probably not much of it at least, but the geometry of space. What is shape, space shaped like? So that's one of those ones that's really hard to imagine because we're used to a three-dimensional space. When you have to start considering four dimensions or more, some of the string theories go up to you know, 11, 12 dimensions or more trying to explain everything. It's not something you have you know, everyday knowledge of. You can't really, we can understand it mathematically, can do the calculations, not us, we're not doing them here. That's you know, well beyond our math here. But you can do the calculations to understand what it would be like, but to really visualize what a sphere is like in, four, in three dimensions. We know what a sphere looks like. What does that look like expanding into a fourth dimension? You can't picture that fourth dimension. It's not something you can imagine in your head. Because we look at directions, we know we have three spatial dimensions, right? Got left, right. You got forward, backward, and you got up, down. They're all perpendicular to each other. The fourth dimension would be something that is simultaneously perpendicular to all of those. How can you? You can't do it. You can't visualize it, but it could be there. It could be there, it's just we can't, because of the way we look, we're, we're confined to three dimensions to looking. We can't look out into that fourth dimension. So there's some of that is really, when we get into that, that's part of the part that really gets your mind kind of, kind of going. Fate of the cosmos, what's, yeah, gone already, right? Fate of the cosmos, what's going to happen to us? There's a couple of things that can happen. We're expanding. We can continue to expand, or we can stop expanding and contract. Right? If I launch a rocket, it can either head off into space and keep going forever, or it can go in a trajectory and come back down to Earth. So either of those two things, we'll look at those and look at the possibilities for each. And then we will get back into the Big Bang here, the early universe. What was that like? 
and how the initial material formed. How did we form that? Cosmic inflation explains some of our observations as that the universe all of a sudden went from atomic sized, incredibly tiny, to universe sized in a tiny fraction of a second. And then kind of leading back to what we started with, how did we form from all that we learn here, how do we form what we see? We know what's formed and how do we actually form that, how do we actually form that structure that we see today? So here's where we ended up last time or two times ago that we were looking at. This is a map of all the galaxies looking at distances of here a billion parsecs, several billion light years. Each one of those dots being a galaxy. We don't see very many out here just because they're so faint. It's hard to detect them. We see lots more in here. The Great Wall is one of the largest features that we see and we don't see any other big structure. You don't see any walls that stretch across, you know, more, more than a couple hundred million parsecs. You don't see any great walls that stretch way across this whole thing. You don't see any big voids, you know, big giant empty spaces. It's really the universe when you get to the very biggest scales is essentially the same no matter where you look. No matter what section of it I pick, if I pick a random block like that, I see a certain number of galaxies with a certain pattern. Statistically, is it that different here or here? If I pick a big enough set, it really looks about the same. So the largest structure is that Sloan Great Wall that we see. That's the largest structure we have seen in the universe. Anything larger than that, we do not, do not see. Again, this is still only part of the universe. We still can't even see back very well the rest of that. But we believe that it's going to remain the same, that it looks pretty much, it's pretty similar no matter where we look. That tells us that the universe is homogeneous. homogeneous. That it is exactly the same, essentially the same. No matter what section I take, it's pretty much the same. You know, our atmosphere would be homogeneous. You know, one block here. I take a cubic foot of atmosphere here, and I take a cubic foot of atmosphere, you know, a hundred miles away, and I check their com other compositions are going to be about the same their properties are going to be roughly the same. It's going to have the same amount of hydrogen, same amount of helium, same amount of oxygen, same amount of nitrogen, you know, all the elements, we'd have roughly the same amount. Would it be identical? No. You might have some that has a little bit higher concentration of certain particles. Right? If you're going close to a factory, you might have certain industrial pollutions that you know, are higher in some areas. But overall, the atmosphere is pretty homogeneous. So is the universe. That doesn't mean that if I take a certain big block, 300 million parsecs across, that each of them is going to have an exactly the same number of galaxies. Some might have a few more, some might have a few less, but overall we don't really see any big changes. The other thing we don't see is it doesn't really matter where we look. I can point the telescope in one direction out here where there's nothing. It looks pretty much the same as if I look in the south. That's what we did. We, you saw two of those, two Hubble deep fields that have been done, one in the northern hemisphere, one in the southern hemisphere. They're essentially the same. That's why it doesn't matter which one you pick. That's what we call isotropic. It means that the universe looks the same no matter what direction we're looking. So if I point the telescope this direction, I see some number of galaxies. I point the telescope this direction, I see some number of galaxies. No matter where I point it, it looks the same to us. That's not true of our galaxy. 
right? Our galaxy, we looked at that, our galaxy is flattened. It makes a big difference to us. Oops, not with that one. Let's try this one. Our galaxy was a flattened disk, and we're out here someplace. I'm going to see a lot more stars if I look this direction, remember the star counts, than if I look this direction or this direction. Our galaxy would not be isotropic. Our galaxy would not be homogeneous. It doesn't matter, it does matter what section of the galaxy you take. If you take a block here towards the center, it's going to be very different than if you take a block out in the halo. So our galaxy would not fit these two, but the universe seems to. When you get to big enough scales, it seems like it really doesn't matter where you look, you're going to get voids, you're going to get walls, but they're all going to be roughly the same. And this is our cosmological principle. It includes these two assumptions that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. So we make those two assumptions. Do we know for sure that it is? Only way you know for sure is you look every single direction, right? You've got to look every single direction, but we don't see any patterns, anything that throws this off. So our cosmological principle will assume that the universe is, has isotropy and homogeneity. So that tells us something. First of all, if the universe is homogeneous, it is isotropic, it is infinite and unchanging, these are four things that were strongly believed about it even just a few hundred years, a couple hundred or so years ago, then that means that the entire sky should be as bright as the surface of the sun. So Olber's paradox was why is the night sky dark? Because we believe the universe is homogeneous. Every block of it is the same. We believe it's isotropic. It doesn't matter where I look. They believed it's infinite. It goes on forever and that it's unchanging. It doesn't change over time. In that case, it wouldn't matter where you looked, pick any direction. Eventually, this is infinite, right? You go out forever. Eventually, you're going to hit the surface of a star. Um, the analogy there, right? If you're standing in the forest, if you're looking, are you going to be able, you're not going to be able to see the sky. Each little bit is blocked out by part of the tree or the leaves. You're not going to see any little bit of the sky peeking through if the forest is dense enough or big enough. If it just goes out far, it doesn't even have to be very dense if it goes out far enough. If the universe goes on forever and is infinite, then everything, you should, no matter where you look, any line of sight, I point here, I'm going to point to a star eventually. Might be in some distant galaxy. Over here, I'm going, eventually I'm going to see that star no matter where I look. And that means the entire sky should be eventually as bright as the surface of the sun. So how do we solve this? Well, we've already said that we are, we're going to assume these two are correct, that the universe is homogeneous and it is isotropic. So that means it must not be one of these two. One of these other two must be incorrect at least, or both of them. So we said the first two, it must be, the universe must not be infinite. That's still a possibility. Could the universe be infinite? It really depends on its shape and how we look at it. So it still could be infinite or unchanging. We now know, and again, we only found this in the 1920s. So we're less than 100 years from the time that we actually found out that galaxies are moving away from us. And that was Hubble's law. If you remember, we did Hubble's law last time. which said that 
the velocity is equal to Hubble's constant times the distance. It's written out in words there. I'm just going to put the symbols up on the board. But it was a relationship between how fast things were moving and how far away they are. So that means that the universe is not unchanging. The universe is changing over time. Again, that's less than 100 years since we've really been able to determine that. We actually knew that the universe was expanding. That we knew that those other galaxies out there, that we look at billions of them today, that they were actually other galaxies outside of our own. It's not things that we knew we've known for a very long period of time, astronomically speaking, or even history speaking. So we do know that the universe is changing, that galaxies are getting further and further away over time. Again, they're moving incredibly fast. It's not something that we'll ever notice over our lifetimes, how far they move, because the distances are so great. We're not going to see galaxies disappearing off into the distance that they're moving so fast away, even though those most distant ones are moving faster than anything we can imagine. They're moving you know, a big fraction of the speed of light. The distances are so great that it's nothing we'll ever be able to notice. But that's why the sky is dark at night. If all four of those properties were true, it would be bright. You go out at night, it would be just as bright as it is during the day. But because the universe is not, may, may or may not be infinite, we haven't gotten there yet. We'll talk about that later in the chapter. And we know it's not now unchanging, that the universe is changing. It's not static, it doesn't stay exactly the same. So, if we know that it's changing, we have Hubble's law, we can then say that the time, right, you've seen this one before, right, time is distance divided by velocity. I'm going to write it with just the symbols here. Time it takes something, time it takes to get someplace is how far you're going, dividing by how fast you're traveled, traveling. Well, we know what Hubble's law is. Hubble's law gives us a velocity, so that time is also equal to the distance that we had, divided by v is the same as this. So the time it took the galaxies to get someplace, we can figure out a velocity, we can measure that from Hubble's law. Distances, we can measure. So we want to figure out how long did it take the galaxies to get there. Well, it's even simpler than that because once we determine what Hubble's constant is, d divided by d, right? Anything divided by itself is 1. So these distances go away. And that means that the time it took the galaxies to get where they are today is just 1 divided by Hubble's constant. If we can determine what Hubble's constant is, that is the age of the universe. That tells us how old the universe is. But we have to know what Hubble's constant is. I told you that's about 70. Weird set of units, kilometers per second per megaparsec. Roughly. Still we don't know what exactly. Is it 70, 75, 80, 60? We think we've narrowed it down pretty well now, getting a little bit better handle on it. Again, a lot of this is relatively recent that we've determined in the last couple of decades. It was just you know, 20 to 30 years ago that Hubble's constant was in the range of 50 to 150. Makes a pretty big difference in the age of the universe if you assume it's that Hubble's constant is 50 
compared to this, that's a three times difference in the age of the universe. So had some very interesting things there to consider. You could have it a much, much younger universe, a much, much older universe than what we get today. If we do this and use 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec, 1 divided by 70, with these strange units, we don't have to go through all the calculations. You've got to convert megaparsecs to kilometers and get rid of that all. It turns out it's about 13 and a half to 14 billion years. So that means the age of the universe is about 13.5 to 14. Ugh. Can't write today. Try that again. Billion years old. That's about how long it took, based on our measurements, how long it took the galaxies to get from this initial point where they were all compressed together to have expanded out to where they are today. So, again, put that up there. I've already done that calculation a little bit. I'm just giving you the numbers, what you'll see. But 14, about 14 billion years old, about how long it's taken those galaxies to expand from nothing, from a tiny point, out to this great uh, universe that we see today. And there still is some you know, debate as to exactly what that number is, but we're narrowing it down a lot better than we had here. We're getting down to the 70 range and hopefully over coming decades we'll be able to find it even closer. Problem is we're making measurements towards the edge of the universe. Uh, edge of the universe. It's difficult. We're looking at very, very distant objects. Um, the last comment there just says that Hubble's law is the same. It doesn't matter who you are in the universe making these measurements. Not just somebody here on Earth, but it doesn't matter if you're an astronomer in another part of our galaxy or in another distant galaxy millions or billions of light years away. You're going to make exactly the same measurements and you're going to get exactly the same value for Hubble's constant. It doesn't matter where you are in the universe. It's all the same. This is, a, this is a property of the universe, of its expansion. Doesn't matter that we're here and somebody else is there. They're going to see us receding away from them at great speeds. It's all going to look the same. It's all relative to who is making the observation. So Hubble's law does not depend on, well, that only works for us here in the Milky Way galaxy. It works everywhere. Doesn't matter where you are in the universe. All right. So, if we take everything backwards, we crush everything down together, galaxies are far away now. They're getting closer and closer together. If we could go back a billion years, they were a little bit closer together. If we could go back five billion years to when the solar system formed, they were a lot closer together. If we could go back ten billion years to when the galaxy formed, they're even closer together. If we go back fourteen billion years, all those galaxies were at one point. And that's what we call the Big Bang. That's when the expansion started. That's when everything began was at that point. But it wasn't just the galaxies that were together. It was everything. You know, we think of moving things closer together, right? We push everything closer together. Space is still there. Well, that wasn't the case in the universe. The universe was not only was all the material there, but all of space and all of time were compressed down there. What was beyond the edge of that? Nothing. And how do we figure out, you know, how do we see nothing? Nothing is not just um, empty space. Nothing is physically nothing. There was actually nothing there. So when we talk about the expansion, we tend to think of, oh, these galaxies are flying off through space. It's not. It's space is expanding and bringing the galaxies with it. 
So what is it expanding into? That's where we need that other dimension. We need to imagine this great big, let's consider it a sphere for right now, a great big sphere in three dimensions, expanding not within three dimensions, but expanding into a fourth dimension, getting bigger and bigger, such as a balloon, two-dimensional surface, expanding into three dimensions. We can watch how that gets bigger and bigger. We can understand it because we can picture three dimensions. We can infer the existence of three dimensions. Four dimensions is beyond our understanding. So the Big Bang was everywhere. So what I want to do, I'm going to take a that here, I have a quick video I want to go ahead and do. So let me pause. But I don't want you to get the impression that I can understand that any better. That, you know, what is outside? If the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? I can't picture that. I mean, it's not like a balloon is the two-dimensional surface expanding out in the three dimensions. Our whole universe is the three-dimensional surface of something expanding out into a fourth dimension. I can't picture it. I know that's how we can comprehend it. That's how our mathematics shows it, work, it works. But it's not something that I can picture any better than you. So when you can't picture it, don't, <laughs> don't feel bad. If you can, great. You probably want to go into <laughs> But I don't even think you know, uh, the, doctor, the professor there could really understand, could really see it. Mathematically, yes, but you can't just picture it in your head because it's not something we have any kind of everyday experience with. And it's hard to imagine. You know, we think of the Big Bang, OK, this great explosion. You put a bomb there, and it blows up, and it, the particles go out into space. That's not what happens with the Big Bang. There was physically nothing there before. And the whole universe is created. Space, time, everything was created at that point. All right, so let's look at trying to demonstrate this in a two-dimensional analogy here, which is balloons, a balloon. You take a balloon, and stick coins to it. So you blow it up a little bit, stick a few coins to it, glue some coins on it. Why coins and not just draw on it? Drawing would be a lot easier with a marker, right? Problem is if you draw your little galaxies with a marker, they get bigger and bigger as you expand to. That's not what happens. The galaxies, our galaxy is not getting any bigger because of the universe is expanding. Our galaxy is gravitationally bound together. The space between the galaxies is what's changing. So this is really a better analogy doing it like this. Although if you want to try it for yourself to kind of visualize this, work drawing little galaxies or dots on it works. You just have to understand that, you know what, those galaxies really aren't getting any bigger. It's just that everything is getting further away. So here what we're doing is we're considering the universe, our universe, instead of looking at a three-dimensional universe, right, up and left and right, forward and backward and up and down, let's just look at it as a two-dimensional universe. You're confined to one of these galaxies. You're confined to the surface. You can't go any other direction than just on the surface of the balloon. Okay? You can, you're just confined to two dimensions. You can't look this direction and see anything out here. You can't look inside and see what, what's in there. So you really can't see any where the expansion began. You have no way to look inside there. You are confined. Your eyes only look in two dimensions along this surface. That's all you can see. But if you're in one of these galaxies, you could measure other galaxies. And as you expand the balloon, you would see that every other galaxy, no matter which one of these you pick, you know, do I live here in this middle one? Well, everything's moved further away from me. Say you live in this one. Well, still, as you expand, every galaxy is still further away from you. And each of them is going to measure the same rate of expansion. But that's the idea. What is the universe expanding into? Well, this two-dimensional universe that you're confined to is expanding into a third dimension. 
Okay? We can picture that. We can imagine the balloon expanding because we can see three dimensions. Our universe, you have to imagine a sphere so expanding into a fourth dimension. So a four-dimensional object and something we cannot, you know, we can draw cross-sections of them, how they appear in our three-dimensional universe, but we can't really physically picture one. There is just no way to be able to do that, to be able to see a fourth dimension. There's also, no matter where you are in that universe, no matter which of these galaxies you're on, again, you can only measure the surface of this. So there is no center. Where did the Big Bang begin? Well, it's somewhere off in that fourth dimension. But our entire universe is part of that expansion. So our entire universe, the surface of this balloon, is our universe. Not the air inside it, not the air outside it. Just the surface is what we're picturing as our universe. Everything gets further apart, but no matter where I go, I can go in this, from this galaxy and travel and around and around and come back to where I was without ever finding a center. You can walk around the surface of the Earth without ever seeing the center of the Earth. Right? No matter where you walk, you're never going to get to the center. If our universe is shaped like this, shaped like a sphere, which is one of the theories that our universe is a great four-dimensional sphere expanding, or further in dimensions, expanding outward, there is no center that we can ever picture. The, the expansion started at every single point here, simultaneously, every point in the universe, right here where we are, it started billions of light years, billions of light years away. All of that was the Big Bang all at once when the expansion began. It's not something that we can ever see a center to because it's outside of our universe. Right? Our universe, again, is just the surface of this balloon, not anything further, further in. So you can do that, and people have done that. I usually have my online classes do that as one of their discussions. I say, go get a balloon. And you can do coins, but even if you just draw on it just to understand that the, coin, the galaxies really won't expand. And you can really get an idea of how things, how things work. And if you blow it up too far, then you really get the Big Bang, right? If you blow it up too far, then boom, it your balloon explodes on you and you really get a Big Bang. We also get a cosmological redshift. We can do that with the balloon too. This time you do want to draw on it. This time you take a balloon and draw a little wave. Draw a little curved wave there, wave of light traveling. If you draw a very small wavelength, as the balloon expands, what happens? That's going to get stretched out longer and longer. That's going to get stretched out further and further. And that means that the original energy of the Big Bang, that was extremely high energy, it wasn't radio waves, it wasn't visible light, you know, we're talking super high energy gamma rays. How high energy can we get? That's how much energy was existing at that instant when the universe started. It was all gamma rays. But the universe has stretched a lot since then, and those wavelengths have gotten stretched. They're traveling through the universe. They're getting stretched very long, too. And those wavelengths that we used to see as very short wavelength gamma rays have now been stretched because of the expansion of the universe out to radio waves. And we can still detect those. We can still detect that energy from that expansion that began 14 billion years ago. We can still detect it out in the universe. In fact, everywhere in the universe. There is an energy uh, with a very long radio wavelength that we can detect every place in the universe. Right here, where we are. Okay? It's overwhelmed here by everything else that we see. Right? We've got lights and everything else and heat 
and snow and all sorts of things that are changing the temperatures and, and that, changing the wavelengths and the energy that we can detect. But if you look out in empty space, no matter where you look, you always get the same amount of energy. We always see that. All right, so these are hard to comprehend. That's that's least to say, right? If anybody has that great picture of this expanding universe, please tell me, because I under, I mean I know what's happening, but I still can't picture it. You know, even after doing this for 30, 30 some years, really, and over, you know, I still can't picture that. Expa- I can't picture the universe expanding. I can explain it. I can't really be able to picture it. If we really want to understand it, we really have to get into you know. The math of general relativity, which we certainly don't want to do to do. I don't want to do it. So that's really some upper upper level math. I and mean, we're not talking calculus. We're way beyond, we're way beyond that in terms of the mathematics that we need to be able to understand. But we can get some parts of it. We can look at some parts of it in a simpler manner. And that's what we want to do is look at, you know, what can we understand by using simple analogies, like using the balloon to understand the expansion of the universe. You know, what else can we use to really be able to understand what's going on and what does the Big Bang mean and how does it work and how do we form everything. So you're not going to see any of the field equations of general relativity up there. I didn't put them up, I didn't put anything like that up there for you. You need some pretty high level math to really do it properly. It's not stuff that is things that you can intuitively say, oh yeah, I can understand, you know, that universe expanding. But there are some things that we can try to explain, we can try to explain. And that's what I'm going to just get you a little bit of a start here on and then we'll pick up with most of this on Monday. So I'm just going to get you a little bit of a start here on what we can on what we can try to understand. So what can we understand about the shape of the universe? So, what can happen? Universe is expanding. That is something we know. We've made measurements. We can see that all these galaxies are moving away from us. They can do one of two things, right? I throw the eraser up. It comes back down. For a while, it's expanding away from me, but gravity is pulling it down. It's going to slow down. Is it going to stop or is it going to keep going forever? Well, if I was standing on the surface of the comet, right? Remember the comet we landed on earlier? If I threw it from there, I could throw it off into space and it would never come back. That would be the universe expanding forever. If I throw it here on Earth, no matter how hard I throw it, it's going to come back down. Right? The gravity is strong enough. So, two thi- one of two things can happen. In the very distant future, the universe is either going to keep expanding, there was enough energy that it just keeps going. We launched that rocket with so much energy that that spacecraft is heading out into space and it's never coming back. Voyager spacecraft, they're going. They're never coming back to Earth. They're on their way out there. Earth's gravity still pulls on them, but nowhere near enough. They're going to head off to interstellar space and keep going forever. Or there could be enough matter in the universe. You've got all these galaxies. They're all pulling on each other, tugging each other, trying to pull each other back. We're pulling on Andromeda. Our group of galaxies is pulling on other galaxies. They're all pulling. There could be enough matter in the universe to eventually cause them to collapse, to slow them down. Those galaxies go out, they eventually get to some peak, and they start to come back. If they eventually start coming back, then then some point in the far distant future everything rushes together and we had the Big Bang, sometimes called the Big Crunch. And all these galaxies streaming towards each other and boom, they collide again. 
Is that what she was talking about? You know, that happens and then another universe forms later? That there could be some kind of oscillation to the universe? It forms, it expands, it comes back down and then starts all over again. If we assume that gravity is the only thing that's important there, how much gravity, how much matter is pulling on it, it depends on the density of the universe. How many stars are there for each you know, cubic light year? How many atoms are there in every cubic centimeter averaged over the universe? Lots and lots of them here on Earth. Almost nothing when you get out to space. So it really depends on what the density of the universe is. So if we have a high density, the universe expands forever. Here's where the Big Bang would occur. Here or here, we're right at this point. So distance, how far away are things, time. Here objects keep getting further and further away. If the density is low enough, then things expand forever. If there's enough density there, then all the galaxies are pulling on each other. And you see them doing that here, and it's slowing down a little bit. They're not going to go quite as fast. They're slowly going to slow down, but they're going to keep expanding. They're not going to come back to Earth. If there's enough matter, everything's come back, and you go from Big Bang here, big crunch at the end. Everything crunches back together. It just depends on how much matter there is. So we can look at how much matter, we can look at the stars, we can count how much material there is in our galaxy, we can look at clusters of galaxies, add up all that material, and try to decide how much material there is. Is there enough that the universe is going to come back down and crunch, or is it just going to keep expanding outward forever? So based on that, there are three things that the universe can do. Said there were two. Well, there's a borderline case. You can have a closed universe. Closed is kind of like a sphere. It's closed in on itself. Again, a sphere, a four-dimensional sphere that we're seeing. We're seeing a cross-section of it in three dimensions. But that leads to collapse. It's closed. It's got a very high density. It will collapse back down. An open universe, I'm going to skip to number three, expands forever. It'll never stop. It'll keep expanding, going outward and outward and outward. Slowing down, right? it's going to slow down because the gravity is pulling backwards. Gravity is trying to pull everything back down. But there's just not enough material there and it's going to expand forever. Flat is kind of the critical right in between these two. If you have just the exact amount of matter that you need perfectly, then the universe expands forever but just barely. It stops expanding after an infinite amount of time. So it's going slower and slower and slower and slower, but it's still just expanding. So a billion years from now, a trillion years from now, a hundred trillion years from now, it's slower and slower and slower, but it never quite stops. So it'll just barely continue expanding forever. That's sort of the number that we're looking for because that's the border between the two. If it's, the density is higher than that, then the universe is closed. If the density is less than that, then the universe is open and expands forever. So that's the number that we're going to be looking at. You know, what is, and what does the critical density mean? And what does that tell us about what the universe looks like? Because the universe looks quite different if it's closed as compared to being open. Now, the next I want to get into is the shape. So I'm not going to try to start that right now since I've only got a couple minutes left here. So I'm going to go ahead and stop at that point. 
Don't forget the course evaluation and send me an email before midnight Sunday. If you've, do, if you've done it, I'll get you those extra credit points. And I'll pick up, pick up here on Monday. Have a good Thanksgiving. If you're traveling, drive safely. And I hope to see everyone on Monday.